the message that I'm about to deliver to you is very personal to me because it's something that I'm struggling with. And one of the concerns that I always have when I go up here is that I want to be able to preach to you in strength and in power and in honesty at all times. And I found that this particular one was really hard hitting for me and it may be well for you too. Over the last number of weeks, about three weeks, I've really struggled with distractions. I don't know if some people, you know, maybe it's spring fever, maybe it's because my mind wants a break, I don't know what it is. But I found myself chasing after things to make myself feel better. Whatever it is, whether I'm tired or exhausted mentally from work or what have you, or whether or not it's just this idea that I want to feel good that day, I tend to chase after something and then almost inevitably it never satisfies. So then I start going on to the next thing or the next thing or the next thing. And what ends up happening is my mind just gets absolutely convoluted with disappointments or constantly exhausted after the chasing, the mental chasing. And what I found was all of a sudden we run smack into this book of First Peter. And it starts talking and all today's message ends up really talking about controlling your thoughts and your mind. And I have just been a mess. So last night I come walking in after this series of, you know, not being able to sleep, staying up extra late, trying to hope, you know, and I'm talking about things, everything from, gosh, maybe I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of tired. I just got to, I got to go see a movie just to try to relax, or I got to go to this just to try to relax. And when you keep trying to chase stuff to relax and they don't work, you're more exhausted than when you started. So as I've been going through this, as most all of you know, I'm very open about um, the fact that I have an anxiety disorder. It began to creep in right? Pretty, pretty subtly. And then it hit really hard last night. So, uh, I came in last night and I was feeling okay, came into the service. And then I noticed I started getting really anxious for whatever reason. So I started hanging out by the door and if people were by the door, they kept seeing me leave and then I'd come back in and leave and come back in. Well, what I was doing was trying to clear my head. I would go out by the door and I opened it up so I could feel the wind coming in because I was starting to feel a lot of this pressure of whatever I was doing. And I was stressing a lot because I knew that the message today was all about locking up your mind. And normally I have tremendous self-control when it comes to my mind and thoughts and things that I do, but I have so allowed it to unravel over the last number of weeks that I began to carry this idea of going, I don't want to walk up and sound like a hypocrite. I don't want to pretend like as if I have this stuff down. So all this stuff was hitting me. So right before I actually sat out in the lobby by myself until I could hear all the speakers out there and I could hear that worship finished up, announcements finished up, then I had to come right up here and preach. So when I share these things with you today, understand I'm preaching just as much to myself, if not more, than I'm preaching to you. That it is so easy to once we pull a string on our minds that it begins to wind out. And then almost like fishing line, there's this tangle. And you're like, how in the world did that happen? And you can't seem to get it untangled. And so God has been speaking to me throughout the last couple of weeks of saying, man, we gotta, we gotta lock this thing down. We're all over the map. And you know what? 
When I got here last night, and I got here this morning, and last night I, I left pretty tore up, so I went to bed about 8.15, and I just laid in bed and just stared. I was all tore up. And when I got up this morning, I felt better. There's a lot of prayer. I spent time in the Word, and it allows me to chill out. It puts everything back in its right perspective. And I just want you to know that when you made a choice this morning to come here, you made a good choice. Because it's here that we are about to engage into the Word of God. And when you get a chance to sit at His feet and listen to what He has to say to us, and we begin to implement that stuff, it makes a big difference in our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Our team will bring a Bible to you. Uh, they're going to be coming down the aisle, so if you're towards the front, keep your hands up. It takes a little bit longer for you. Also, take out the handout sheet that is in your bulletin. And we can begin. I should be drawing your attention to a quote there at the top a little bit later in the message. Today is part two in our First Peter series, and I entitled it The Holiness Effect. And I just want to begin with a simple series of questions. Uh, the first question is this. What do you believe about God and yourself? What do you believe about God? I would venture to say that if I was to ask the majority of you that have been in church a lot of your life, you will probably come up with the right answer. If I ask you and I say, is God good? Your answer to that will always be yes. And you will say yes because that's the biblical answer, the biblical response. If you were a little kid in Sunday school, you'd get a gold star for that one. So we all know the right answers. We have a tendency to know what God is like. Now, some of us are brand new to this. Second question, is it what you want to believe or is it what you really believe? Now, that's a whole different ballgame. Your belief systems, not just what you want to believe, what you really believe will shape your actions and shape your life. If you say God is good... Why don't you feel that? If you tell me, and we're singing this song, God, you will never let go. That was the last song we sang, right? Oh, you're never going to let go. You're never going to let go. You're never going to let go. If I ask you right now and I say, show of hands, will God ever let you go? What are you going to say? No, of course not. Because you know the biblical response. Yet so many of us are still wrestling with abandonment issues with God. It's for everybody else, not for us. Oh, God's going to be there when someone else's stuff hits the fan, just not mine. And as a matter of fact, I need to start doing some good stuff in my life. Otherwise, God's going to finally just wash his hands of me and just go, I'm out. When you say God won't let go, when you say that God is good, when you say that God loves you and cherishes you, is that because you want to believe it or because you believe it? What you truly believe will leak out into your lives. What does your life suggest you really believe? Obviously, there's some things going on in my theology about what I believe that are not matching up with what I'm seeing in my life. Even last night, as I went through such a hard night, little by little, some of it was uncontrollable by me, but some of it began to reveal what I really believe about God. 
If I say that God is the most important thing to me, if I say that God is the most fascinating person I've ever been engaged with, if I say that I think about God, I talk with God 24 hours a day, and I say all these things, and I believe them to be true, then why am I struggling so much with distraction? How does that line up? Something's not right. The fill in the blank in front of you on your sheet is this. If knowing Jesus doesn't change our actions, we don't really understand. If knowing Jesus doesn't change our actions, we don't really understand. There's some things about God I don't understand. If you wrestle with guilt and shame of a past that Christ has cleansed, you don't understand grace. If you wrestle with who you are and what people think of you, you don't understand that your father is the only one that gets to dictate your value. What do we believe? Now, last week when we engaged with this, we launched this book and talked a little bit about the flavor of who Peter was and why he wrote and all that. But then he began to chronicle for us glory after glory after glory. He began to talk about how much we're loved and cherished, how personal God is. As a matter of fact, he said we have been hand-selected out to be loved on. That we were washed clean and given a new life. We, were, we are protected by God day and night. And that despite our trials in this life, we have a hope that the best is yet to come. He wrapped it by saying we love him desperately because of who he is and what he has done. If this is true, there must be a difference in our behavior and actions. And that is the challenge for us today. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1? 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13. It's almost all the way to the right in your Bibles if you need to turn there. And the Bible's handed to you. It's page 857. 857. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13. And then what we'll do is I'm just going to read, uh, let's see, 13, 14, 15, and 16, and we'll pray for the word and we'll, we'll get started together. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. And as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. And the only reason that we even have this conversation about being holy is because of what you've done, Jesus. That when you paid for our sins and you sent your Holy Spirit, then we have been justified made right in your eyes or in the process of being sanctified and made to look like you one day we will be glorified because you've cleansed us in the meantime Lord we are rather disappointed with what we have become 
And all the open doors that you give us, we take very few of them. We continue to build our own kingdoms. We continue to be distracted by the gods of this world. And we want to submit that to you now. May you change us into men and women that you are pleased by. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a couple therefores as we go through this book, and these are very crucial to pay attention to. Because it says, if this is true, then this should be true. And we know that we believe the things that we mentioned last week. Therefore, he starts out in verse 13, meaning because of what God's done, because of who we know we are in Jesus... Therefore, prepare your minds for action. That word in other translations is gird up your mind. What does that mean? Well, it's a, uh, a Middle Eastern metaphor that they would use that the guys wore long flowing robes and it was a lot about protection from the sun and cool and being able to move around in comfort and so they would wear these robes that would move around when they moved around but if they ever needed to get to work... They would put on a belt, and remember how we talk about the belt of truth, you know, you hear all these different things? He'd put on a belt and then tuck the robes into his belt and hitch it up. Now, ladies, it's this whole idea of kind of that old school, I gotta pull up the dress piece so I can move freely to walk. But guys would do the exact same thing. If they had to go in and do carpentry work, they would wear a different sort of outfit and they would tie up stuff. In our modern day metaphor, it would be roll up your sleeves. Let's get ready to do something. Don't let anything restrict you. Don't let this loose flowing stuff get in the way and get caught. I don't know how many times when you're little, before they started talking about it a lot, that you'd ride your bike and something gets stuck in the chain. You know what I mean? It was that hole and then you tuck it in the sock and look like a total nerd. You guys remember that one? Right? Now they got little guards and stuff like that. But the idea was, if anything is loose flowing and you're in action, it's going to trip you up. It's going to get stuck on something. You all know what everybody wears now when they're in competition. Anybody watch the Olympics? What kind of stuff are the runners wearing? Man, you can tell a lot about a person. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's, what, that's right. And I'll, I know, I know. Instead of your wife, you're looking at these things, the swimmers, right? Man, they're in there. What's the point? They want the least amount of resistance as possible so they can glide through the water. They don't just go out there with all this, you know, flowing stuff on. It just holds you back. So they're streamlined in all ways. He said, you know what? Now that Jesus has done all this for you, your minds are all over the place. Lock it down. We're not just letting it go wherever it wants to go. That's not going to happen. We need to streamline now we're going to maximize our time together. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. That word in Greek says be sober. It's not talking about alcohol. It had that dual meaning. It means be sober in mind. And then all of a sudden I'm reading through, and you know how you read through different commentaries or you read through different things that people say and some just strike you? This one said, beware of intoxicating thoughts. And I went, ooh, that's good. Are there any thoughts that absolutely captivate you and take you away? 
Are there things that you spend the majority of your day dreaming about and you escape with? Whether it's good things or bad things. But you're lost in la-la land because all you dwell on are those thoughts. It could be everything from good stuff. Man, I dream of a day when we have our own home. I dream of this time when I would be able to have children. I dream of this time when we're empty nests and we can get these kids out of here. I could dream of a time. Yeah, yeah, now I'm getting some amens. (laughs) I could dream of a time when I can get out of this job. Because it's killing me every day. But then you spend the majority of all your days dreaming of these other things. Is it negative things? Negative self-image, negative stuff where you're lost in depression and anxiety and in doubt. And your mind, just like a freight train, is running down this track. You can't even pull this back. It's intoxicating. You're drunk on this idea of hopelessness. And you can't clear your head. No matter how hard you try, it's double image everywhere. Beware of intoxicating thoughts that carry you away. It says, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. In other words, know your goal. Our goal is not here. Our goal is in the afterlife. Our goal is directly towards Jesus, and we need to keep locked on that. If you have a goal in mind, you can withstand an extreme amount of strain. Let me use an example. Let's say, for example, that there are folks here, and there are a lot of them. Um, By the way, just show of hands, uh, how many here have ever run a marathon? Anybody ever run a marathon? All right. There's a number of you, okay? Now, we could go back and pull that back and say, all right, anybody run a 5K or more? Anybody run? Okay, that's everybody. All right, over there. Good. That's a huge amount of you. Now, now let me, how easy is it to do? Is there any training that goes into this? Well, certainly there is, and we've talked about the fact that there's a lot of training. But think about it this way. You go through and literally say, if you're going for a marathon, you will have to do things like 13-mile runs a day to start getting your body prepared. Now, a 13-mile run is really, really far. And you're sitting there, you're sweating, you're straining, you're pushing your body to the limit. And you're exhausted. Then you go back and know that you're going to do it again. Why? Because there's a goal in mind. Let's say, for example, someone told you and you were not a runner. They said, I want you to run five miles today, six miles the next day. Next week, I want you to run eight miles because if you do not do that, you cannot live here. Can you imagine somebody that said that and you had to run and push your body mile after mile after mile? What would you call that person? I would call them a torturer. Yeah? It's funny, if it was forced upon you, it's horrible. If you choose to do it, it's fine. And we call it exercise. (laughs) Everything has to do with why you're doing it. 
In this life, if you know where you're headed and you know what you're building and you know who you're becoming in Jesus Christ, then trials and difficulties are all part of the picture. If you do not have that goal in mind, you are merely feeling tortured in life. Does that make sense? Everything's just miserable and it's being pushed on you all the time. However, if you have a trainer that's telling you what to do, they're an external person, but you believe what they're saying because once again, you know, they're looking out for your best interest and they're trying to get you to a goal. They're not a torturer. They're a trainer. Only difference you bought in. That's the difference. It says, set your hope fully. On the grace to be given you, meaning that great reception that Jesus will have for you because you have been cleansed in the end. Verse 14, as obedient children, and in the Bible, whenever it says children, it means just like their dad. As children of obedience, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. The phrase do not conform is actually passive in Greek. Do not let yourself be shoved into this mold. Do not allow yourself to be conformed. Resist that. Don't just let it happen. Do not be conformed. Now, Paul said it this way in Romans 2, 12, 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The pressures of life will shape you. What pressures are you going to allow in? Do not conform to the evil passions, it says, the stuff you crave or craved when you lived in ignorance. Before you knew Jesus, you were clueless as to what life was about. You thought you knew. But now that you end up knowing Jesus, reading the Bible, you begin to realize why you're here. You are here to carry out the will of God. You are here to have a relationship with your creator. You are here because God wants to work through you and do things with you. You also know your value. You are worth a son of God dying for you, at least in his eyes. You are a child of God. You are precious. You are being chased after. You are being loved on. The Holy Spirit has been given that he might walk alongside us and carry us during the difficult times. It says, but before that, you had no clue. You're ignorant. You just went through life and you bought what everybody else handed to you. Oh, life is about success and money and what I can do and then fame and then all that stuff ended up being garbage and you were really disappointed. Verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. What does it mean that God is holy? Well, holiness has a couple different meanings to it, but the main meanings are that God is morally perfect. God is the absolute standard of perfection, that all that he does is good and right, that he is astounding. In light of A God like that, who is our Father, we are to duplicate that in being set aside, set apart for His purposes. Be holy, do God stuff in all that you do. 
For it is written in Leviticus 11.44 and many other places, Be holy because I am holy. A couple interesting things about that is, number one, God never asks you or commands you to do something he will not empower you to do. That's number one. So whenever you see a command in Scripture, there should be an encouragement attached to that. Which means if he wouldn't tell me to do it, if he wouldn't help me do it, right? That's one encouragement. But be holy in all you do. Here's the other encouragement. When you become brand new or born again in Jesus Christ, your capacity expands. And you begin to be able to do things you could never do before. When you begin a new life in Jesus and you receive forgiveness, you suddenly have the ability to forgive like you never did before because you've experienced it. When you are loved on by God, while you are an enemy, you now have learned and experienced what it is to love an enemy. And your, ex- your capacity expands and you can do things you never did before. Because we are new in God, because we have been given a new life, because we have a new spirit, we can be holy. Set apart for God's purposes. Now, ultimately, it's all going to go back to Jesus. He's the only one that cleanses you and makes you holy, and he's the only one that empowers you to do so. However, all that is at our disposal. Because God said so. We pick it up again. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live here as strangers in reverent fear. Wait, since you call on a father, meaning it's very personal, yes, God is your dad, but understand what your dad's like. He judges, and that is present tense. He's judging all our actions right now. Everything we're doing, he's dishing out, going like me, not like me. Good, bad, right, wrong. He's slicing through and determining all our motives and everything that we're engaged with. As he's judging all that out, you have a dad who's doing it, but do not make a mistake that because it's your dad sorting it out, he's going to let it slide. Because he judges every man impartially, saying he's going to call it right or wrong, whether you're his kids or not. He's not going to go, yeah, I totally get it. That's my kids. You know what? Leave my kids alone. They're not allowed to be called bad. And we all know that that we don't respect that kind of parent, right? Who seems to have a blind eye to everything their kids are doing, but they seem to know everybody else's kids' problems. Nobody likes that parent. They're horribly irritating, right? Well, that's not my kid, but everyone else has problems. God knows his kids have problems. God's still slicing and dicing and figuring it out and going, you know what, kids, you're wrong. That's completely out of line. We're not doing that. You know that you have a dad who judges each man's work impartially. Therefore, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Know that your dad is big. Know that you do not cross your father. You do not lead a rebellion against your dad. You do not try to usurp his throne because he will crush you. You know how big your dad is. That should lead to some respect. But there's more than that. It's not just this I'm afraid of God thing because he's so big. But there's also a degree to where when your dad loves on you so much, you don't want to disappoint him. I look at my kids' eyes. And now Susie in our family is more the disciplinarian. Can you imagine that? So I'm more playful and more 
friendly to the kids about these kinds of things. And so when dad lowers the hammer, it's a big deal, right? But I look at that and there are times when the softer hearted one, Jillian, the older one, she will go, she'll start to cry because she's afraid she disappointed us. And we have to constantly reaffirm her. If she ends up in our house, if you spill something, it just happens. So what? You spilled something. Nobody yells at me when I spill something. You know what I mean? Except my wife. (laughs) The idea is that you just spill stuff so it's no big deal. But it's intriguing how much, even though we don't have any concern about that, their immediate thing is, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, no, did I hurt something mom likes? Oh, no, did I disappoint dad? And there's this instant look up to check our eyes. That's what he's talking about. Do we do that with God? When we do something wrong, do we look up and go, Dad, I didn't, I didn't hurt some of your stuff, right? For you know, verse 18, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He said, for you know, you know this stuff. You know that you weren't redeemed with money. Now, this is the big word, right? The big word of this whole section, redeemed, what does it mean? Well, he's using an analogy that everyone could understand. In in that day, there was estimated to be 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. A huge amount of them got saved. They were involved in the church. So slavery was something they were very familiar with. He said, you weren't purchased on the market with cash redeemed means people would be enslaved for a variety of reasons they would be enslaved through war if they were war criminals or they would be enslaved because of bankruptcy they go upside down they were then owned by the state or their creditors Uh, they were owned because they would sell themselves into slavery because they couldn't make a living on their own or they couldn't pay off certain debts or they were born into slavery or someone sold them as one slave being sold to another person. Now, you could buy your freedom with a certain amount of cash because ultimately slaves were property. And if you could give enough money and they could benefit off that, they don't care if they have you or not. They just let you free. So a slave could either buy his own freedom or someone could pay that price for him. Y'all seeing the spiritual tie-in to all this. The Bible says that the debt that we owe because of our sin could never ever be paid off if we worked our whole lives so we were then sitting on the slavery block with an impossible scenario if someone didn't pay it for us we're doomed because even if we worked our hardest we would never be able to pay the debt that is owed then along comes Jesus And he said, I will have that one right there. And he buys you to set you free. Because he paid the infinite price, right? Which was what? Jesus on the cross. Why was it an infinite price? Because it was with the blood of the Son of God. It was not just any blood. It was the blood of the Son of God. 
It was not just any sacrifice. Now, for some of you that are new to the church, the whole idea of a sacrificial lamb seems strange. So let's go back into the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the way that it would work is that if you did something wrong, you had to kill an animal for it. Why? I don't know. It's kind of a weird thing. Blood had to be shed. I understand the whole thing's bizarre. You would then take an animal that you owned... And it had to be a solid one. It had to be a real legitimate one. You can't like grab Lammy who's got like three legs, you know, and you're like, well, there's really nothing I'm going to do with him, you know, and I'm not going to stuff him later. So you go ahead and take him in and give him to God. No, God's going to go, don't give me your leftovers. What are you thinking? You give me the best. So they're actually temple priests that would examine your animal and they'd go, all right, this one's legit. And that was, you had to find one without spot or blemish. So sure enough, you would take that animal, they would kill it and pour out the blood on your behalf and you would be forgiven on an IOU basis. Because really you're not getting anything just because you kill an animal doesn't mean you're forgiven. But God says you took it seriously. All right, now you still owe me on that one, but I'm going to let it go for now. But I'm going to put that in my pocket. I got an IOU. All right, I'm going to let you fly on that one because you did what I asked you to do. Now, when was that IOU going to be paid? The only time that was ever paid off was Jesus Christ on the cross. So everyone in the Old Testament that ever killed an animal for their sins did an IOU for the Messiah to eventually pay. Does that make sense? Now, you were not bought back from slavery by cash. You were bought by the sheer blood of Jesus. That should make a difference in how you live. It says, he was chosen, speaking of Jesus, meaning selected ahead of time, before the creation of the world. But he was revealed in these last times for your sake. He said, though you see him now and any time after the Messiah is called the last times, you now got to see the Messiah here. But make no mistake, that was not a reaction. It was actually planned before the creation of the world. And then I'm reading this commentary and it says this phrase that made me go, wow. God was redeemer before creator. That's weird. Don't you always think it's the other way around? But he planned out the redemption of mankind before he ever made mankind. That'll blow your mind. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. And through him, you believe in God. Of course you believe in God through Jesus Christ. Not only did he give you a concrete example of what God's like, we would not know necessarily the heart of god certainly not the way that we do now if jesus hadn't walked around and said hey he's like me check it out but he also provided the means by which to know god he came here died on a cross that we might be reconnected with our creator and that relationship could be reattached through him you believe in god who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in god Your faith, your confident assurance, your hope clinging to what is true. These things are all locked in God now. Now he shifts one more and starts getting even more practical. Now that you have purified yourselves, now that you've been cleaned up by Jesus and started a new life, by obeying the truth, what does that mean? It means you repented through the gospel of your sins and clung to Jesus Christ. 
Because you've done that so that now you have a larger capacity to have sincere love for your brothers, here's what I want you to do. Love one another deeply from the heart. All right, this is going to blow everybody's little assumptions away. And we're about to kick up the bar. Because here's what it means. Love one another deeply from the heart. That is a command to agape. Agape is the famous Greek word for love that's kind of all in. I'm completely focused on your best interest. Mind, will, emotions, everything involved. But here's what's interesting. Here's the definition of the word in Greek. It says, in an all-out manner with intense strain to the limits. That's how we're supposed to love one another. In an all-out manner, straining to the limits. You ready? Here we go. This is where we're going to raise the bar and blow out everybody's expectations. The church is full of, I don't like you, but I have to love you in Jesus. The church is full of that person really irritates me. I want nothing to do with them. They bug me. But if I'm asked, I will say I love them because Jesus loved me. The church is full of this halfway. I choose to do this. And you know what? I'm going to be nice to you. That's all we're saying. I will be nice to you. Because after everything God has done for me, I'll look like a jerk if I'm not. So I will be nice to you. And so we have a lot of niceness in church. That's not going to cut it. That's not acceptable. That is not what our family does. As a matter of fact, you are commanded to do far more than that. Love one another, your enemies, deeply from the heart. you got to involve your emotions. you got to want to love that person. If you don't, you're falling short and we're just not cutting it. You think you can walk around this building and tolerate people. That is not acceptable. In this family, the family of God, you love all of us with everything you have. Wow. How in the world are we going to do that? Only because of Jesus and our new life, our expanded capacity. God has given you so many options to love other people and you're just not taking them. You don't want to walk through that door. You don't want to understand. You don't want to listen. You don't want to think. You want to put people in nice little categories of these people are easy. These people are hard. And I don't love those people. That's not Christianity. It says, love one another deeply from the heart for you have been born again. You're in a new family. That's how we do it. Not of perishable seed. But of imperishable seed, meaning the stuff that God put in your heart that's now going to grow and expand out and completely control you is God's stuff. Through the living and enduring word of God. For in Isaiah 40, it says, all men are like grass, all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. In other words, your human stuff is going to fall apart, but you have God's stuff in you that makes you different. It gives you different capacity. And this was the word that was preached to you. Therefore, and he does the ultimate practical line. 
Therefore, because we are new in Christ with new hearts and a new hope, rid yourselves of these things. That word in Greek means take off your clothes in this way. Paul later on says, I want you to put on these certain clothes. But right now, Peter's hitting it hard. He said, I don't want any of this garbage on you. In this church, these things do not cling to you. Get them off, get them away from you. Rid yourselves of all malice. What is malice? Any evil towards another person. In any way, shape, or form. Any wickedness. You do not hold negativity towards other people in your heart. It's not what we do here. Get rid of all deceit. That means trickery, deception, manipulation. We don't manipulate each other. You do not walk around and try to make someone believe something else that you can get something from them. Get rid of all hypocrisy. The acting and pretending something untrue in order to lead them astray. You play like you're this type of person so you can get this kind of attention when you know full well you're not. That's a mask thing. Get rid of all envy. What is that? That's that resentful discontent that you resent other people in this church because they have what you do not have. And get rid of slander of every kind. Don't you dare speak negatively of another person in this church. When they are not there, you're allowed to put up boundaries. You're allowed to help protect other people. But if what you're about to say is going to lead to someone else to negatively consider another person for no healthy reason, you are way out of line. He said, get all that out. Do not sit there and say, I'm a child of God and I can think the way I want. I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. You're in this family now. And these are the rules of the household. We don't treat each other like that. Like newborn babies, he said, crave spiritual milk, pure spiritual milk, not the garbage of the world, crave to be fed on what I'm giving you in Jesus, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. What do we take from this? Our passions and desires and drives in our lives are going to make us a mess. Our minds are going to go all over the place, and they're going to pick up steam and snowball out of control. No, you don't get to just think about whatever you want. No, you don't get to treat people however you want. You have been purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That means we have a purpose in life. Consider now what you believe. Do you just want to believe that? Or do you really believe that? And is it translating into your life? All these challenges that spin out are because of what God has planted within you. A brand new sort of life. God dwells within us. If we are a believer in Jesus Christ. And He will expand our ability to be like him may we utilize that new life amen let's close in prayer
Heavenly Father, thank you for today. That Lord, in a time of my life when this stuff just hits me so hard, because of the unraveling of my own mind that creates anxiety, that creates difficulty, I find my solace, I found my haven, I find my peace when I get back next to you. I come here to church and I'm focusing on your word and I'm talking with other believers and all of a sudden everything calms down. The anxiety begins to flee and you become more real. I just pray, Lord, that we would live in a constant presence of your Holy Spirit to know that at all times we have been forgiven and changed. May we live lives that operate out of that type of holy living that you might be pleased in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.